0: Hello, listeners. Jordan here. I just want to let you know that you can listen to Nighttime early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. You are tuned to the Nighttime podcast, focused on the fringe of Canada. Very few of you listening have likely served on a jury, but you probably know someone who has, and chances are... The trial that they served on was fairly mundane and unremarkable, but it can happen. Think of someone you know, perhaps your sweet and loving aunt who could never stomach watching a gruesome film or sitting through a true crime documentary. What happens when someone like that gets assigned to a case that features some of the darkest evidence imaginable? How do they get through it? How do they cope? And who picks up the pieces when the deliberations are over and the verdict is delivered? As you'll soon hear, our guest, Mark Ferrant, knows all too well how complicated the answers to those questions are. In 2014, Mark received a letter indicating he was on a pool to serve in the jury for an upcoming murder trial. And to put it quite simply, he hasn't been the same since. The trial was that of Farshad Batikshan, a man accused of the brutal killing of his girlfriend. The graphic details of this case that Mark would become immersed in had left him with the crippling effects of PTSD. And to make matters worse, laws that serve to provide jurors' privacy have made it nearly impossible for Mark to get treatment. This experience, in the end, has become the fuel for one of Canada's fiercest advocates for the rights of Canadian jurors. Tonight, in this episode, we'll be joined by jurors' right advocate, Mark Ferrant, and our topic, The Dark Side of Jury Duty.
1: I'm Mark Ferentz. Uh, I live in Toronto, Ontario. I'm born and and bred Torontonian. Uh, At at present, I'm uh, I'm a justice and mental health advocate. Um, I have taken on this uh, mantle uh, having served as a a jury foreman four years ago in a first-degree murder trial that changed my life. And uh, I developed PTSD as a result of the of the trial experience and and also the after effects of the trial, um, not being able to unpack the images that I saw in the courtroom. So um, I took it upon myself to make sure that other jurors had the supports that I didn't have when I left the courtroom. Mm-hmm.
0: You know, as you just said there, presently you're known across Canada really as a, a juror's right advocate, thanks to this you know experience you had four years ago. What what were you doing before you got that letter basically summoning you to jury duty? Like, what what was your what was your life like prior to that?
1: Uh, I was uh, an executive um, at a, a large telecommunications media company. Um, I had been working in market research insights data um all my career um so i've been working in that industry for almost 20 years and uh, i had a very sort of high profile position uh within the organization working on a on a major sports property I had a three-year-old at home i've been uh, recently married um and was you know living a uh you know a, a middle class Lifestyle in in downtown Toronto. Um, I was a very outgoing, uh, social person. Um, I dabbled in a little bit of uh, stand up comedy on the side. I played sports. I uh, you know I had a well rounded life. Mm-hmm.
0: And like, how did you end up? in the jury is is like the way people would would understand it is basically you just get like a letter in the mail assigning you to, you know, show up at the courthouse on blank date for jury duty. Is that how it happened in your case?
1: In Ontario, they send uh, um, a questionnaire out. So there's uh, I guess it's a twofold approach. You'll receive a, a questionnaire from the attorney general's office. And, um, that's the questionnaire that gets you into the jury data pool as it were. Mm -hmm. So I, I remember getting that questionnaire and, you know, because I work in the industry and, and insights and market research, I was interested in it. So I looked at it and sort of filled it out and really didn't think much of it after that, put it in the mail, off it went. And then, uh, and then I got a summons, uh, just before Christmas and, um, Looked at it and suddenly thought, oh, dear. <laughs> so at the time, I remember, you know, talking to my my boss and saying, you know, this this is serious. You know, it says first degree murder at the top of it. So I knew it was a murder trial. And, you know, he sort of said, well, you know, I don't think you're going to get selected. Let's not worry about it. And I I remember at the time thinking, I think we need to worry about this because we should have a plan. (laughs) So so I I went into court and lo and behold, I was selected.
0: Give us context as our conversation goes. Tell me about this first-degree murder trial that, that you served on. Like, what are some of the, the basic details of that?
1: Well, it wasn't a, it wasn't a trial that, that uh, a case that um, hits the, the national uh, headlines. It did get some local coverage in Toronto. It was a, a first-degree murder case with a what's called an NCR defense. That's a not criminally responsible defense. Um, It was the murder of a a young woman. I believe she was 23, uh, a Ryerson University student, and she was murdered in the uh, apartment building, sort of like a student apartment building that uh, she lived in, that was occupied also by her on-again, off-again boyfriend, who was her murderer. She... Uh, was murdered early one morning. She uh, came down to his basement apartment unit where he attacked her, um, stabbed her 27 times, uh, slit her throat uh, twice from ear to ear, and proceeded to set her and the unit and the building on fire. So he doused her with an accelerant and himself with an accelerant, and it failed. Uh, so the, the fire never took. He tried to light the basement stairwell on fire, and it did catch, but it didn't take. Um, the, she also had defensive wounds on her hands and feet um, and other parts of her body, which indicated as we went into the autopsy indicated that there was a hell of a struggle. Um, So she did not, uh, she put up a significant fight. Awful that she actually, um, I wouldn't say survived, but she lived through the assault and managed to crawl up the burning stairs of the unit. And um, by that point, because it was a rooming house, uh, automatically the fire um, alerted the the fire department. It's one of those automatic um, site-to-site switches. So the fire department were dispatched almost immediately, and I think they they arrived almost at the scene, as it were. So she was taken out of the apartment by uh, paramedics, but died on her way to the hospital. Now he he. The other horrific part of this is that he continued at that point to douse himself with accelerant in an attempt of a a, a suicide at that point, which also failed. So he spent a year in a, a medically induced coma. So by the time he came to court, he was grossly disfigured. He had lost all the hair on his head, had multiple skin grafts on his uh, his face. Um, he had his leg amputated. Um, I believe he did not have the use of one arm, and was confined to a wheelchair. But he was uh, a shadow of what he used to look like from the pictures that were that were displayed to the jury.
0: Wow! And now, when when you tell the story of like as you just did recounting what happened like it's one thing to know know the story and know what happened but when when you're a member of the jury you have to see evidence of all those horrible acts you you just described as well as where it was the ncr defense you would have uh, likely had to see a lot of evidence related to his self-harm and whatnot like what kind of evidence and exhibits were you like a, a regular civilian exposed to in this trial like what like how graphic did it get
1: it was it was fairly graphic the first week really of the trial was the autopsy we were presented with the coroner who walked us through in great detail each wound so uh, a superficial puncture wound versus a um, a deep puncture wound and the and what which wounds would have resulted in a serious injury and and the like and describing a defensive wound so we might spend an hour just reviewing the cut on the hand on the, on the, across the palm of the hand. And so it's, it's different to see it in that circumstance than to look at it in a, in a magazine or, or see it on television as part of fiction, because it's real, it happened. And and all you have to do is look over your shoulder and see that the parents uh, or the, the relatives and loved ones, uh, in the courtroom with you. So it's it's really a very different feeling. And, you know, the, the difference with the jury is that you don't have the ability to raise your hand and say, you know, I've had enough. I think we've gone through this. You can't even talk. So you're, um, you are uh, absorbing material and you have no control over the frequency of it or uh, the rhythm of it. Um, Or the content. So that's another burden that you have to endure. And so, you know, for some, it's not graphic and for others, it is, Um, you know, at the time I was reviewing it. And it would, it would sit with me. But again, I would go home. And then I would go to work because I was still working during the trial. And, and you know, uh, some of it would just sort of go away and some of it would not. It would it, you'd retain it.
0: And like as a again, as a like civilian that's taking all this this in at the time, like as you were going through this, could could you feel the effects of taking in so much, you know, dark graphic information? Did it feel that way as it was happening?
1: I was. Trying to get through it, I, you know, I mean, let's be honest here. There are days where you're going through really mundane testimony. Like there are days where you're just, it's, it's a day of cell phone records or maybe even a half a week of cell phone records. And none of it is really that interesting. Um, it's, it's, it's again, part of the evidence that you're going to have to, you know, understand and, and might be uh, part of the, the evidentiary charge. Um, But then suddenly, wham, up come pictures again because of a changing course of the argument. And suddenly, out of nowhere, there it is. And you can't turn away and you're looking at this. Because in the courtroom that I was in, I was in what was called a a, quote-unquote a state-of-the-art courtroom. So I had a very large computer monitor basically right in front of me, as did the other jurors. And so you're sitting there unable to look away from, from some really horrible stuff. Um, you know, and sometimes what's really even more disturbing is the, is the testimony that you hear from first responders and, and other witnesses, you know, to sit there and and watch a 30 year, um, captain of the fire department break down on the stand and start to cry um, which happened in, in the first uh, I think that within the first two weeks of the trial that's when I knew I was getting into something serious and so that that stays with you too you know um, and the, the problem is you know you're uh, again it's, it's your burden it's the role of the jury to do this and I, I really do believe that it's part of the job. But the, um, your, your whole life, that whole four-month period, is completely packed into that case, wall-to-wall.
0: Yeah, and, and now in your case, when, when this trial concluded, that's kind of when, I, I guess, your your journey to a juror's right advocate began. So like, why don't you kind of tell me about the, the path you took from serving on the jury this case being concluded and then, you know, getting you to where you are now, like what, what trouble did you run into or problems did you face, uh, you know, in the aftermath of this?
1: Well, after the verdict was delivered and, you know, we deliberated for a week, um, I, you know, being somebody that's sort of systematic and, and, you know, working in operations, I fully expected there to be a procedure. So I was waiting for this very well, designed uh, debriefing action at the end of the trial and that i would be taking we would be going into a room and we would talk and we would debrief and we would get i i don't like the word closure but we would there would be a conclusion and there just wasn't we literally packed up our bags back in the jury room the the judge in the case came in and had a cup of tea with us and just you know which is unusual and I, I learned that that was just something that he did, but it was really just to sort of thank us. Um, but that was it for us as jurors. Um, and I, I just thought, this is incredible. I can't believe that there's nothing here. You're stepping out of this vacuum suddenly. That va- you're expected to go back into your life, and and that's when it started to really um, take hold. Uh, it wasn't immediate. I mean, I was feeling the stresses throughout. The trial, certainly, but it just didn't go away. And so I spent, you know, months and months and months trying to shed it and burying myself in work and focusing. You know, my wife and I brought our second child um, into the world a-, a month after the trial concluded. And so what was supposed to be a very happy time for me just wasn't. And I, it's something that I'm trying to rebuild with my son. You know, and I, I just changed as a person. I stopped calling friends. I, I was not returning emails. I was not going outside of my house. I, you know, put on a brave face at work, but I really was not talking to people. I wouldn't let my my daughter out of my sight. I uh, kept a vigil at the foot of her bed. I wasn't sleeping Everywhere I went, all I saw was blood. I just saw blood and gore. And um, it didn't matter what I was doing. It just was always there. And I, again, I just thought I had to get over this. This was, is was my responsibility. Suck it up. Get through it and you know that's the worst advice really that you could give anybody but that's you know what I was trying to uh, trying to do and so finally my family intervened um and said you really need to go and talk to somebody about this and that's when we sort of tried to think about where we would go and so the first place I called was the courthouse thinking okay they do this routinely they must have services for for jurors and so i called and then left a message and there was no call back and i a couple days went by called again and uh finally got a hold of somebody and and hummed and hawed and said well we really don't have anything for you uh i'm sorry we just don't do that And I was just absolutely gobsmacked um, and questioned why the person really didn't have an answer for me, said maybe I should call victim services to see if they had something. And so what I learned was that at the time in Ontario, court-appointed counseling for jurors was available, but it had to have been issued by the judge in the case that you sat on. And because it wasn't done, there was nothing available to me. And I don't blame the justice at all in the case that I sat on because, uh, you know, it's very difficult for a justice to look into the eyes of the jury to know what they're feeling because you're silent. Uh, you know, there were times where some of uh, our our fellow panelists would would cry and weep, but that's about all you're going to get from uh, from a physical signal. So I don't I don't blame. The justice for not doing that, but I was very, I, I was very angry that there was nothing available for me, and that that the onus was on me to go and find that support, which I thought was just absurd, and not just absurd, but it was incredibly difficult. As you probably know, um, it's difficult to get mental health services at the best of times in in Canada. There are enormous wait lists. It's up to a year long uh, to get into the system um, you know I went to my family doctor and she she and I agreed that I was ex- absolutely experiencing symptoms of post-traumatic stress disorder but she didn't really know what to do with me um, uh, again she's a she's a great doctor but this was this was um, difficult and so I was given a list of psychologists to call, I contacted my own employer EAP program, and this was where the beginning of some of the legal issues started to arise, and that my EAP provider, uh, which is an employee assistance program, um, couldn't talk to me. They said, we can't talk to you because you're a juror. I was describing why I was phoning, and immediately red flags went up. And they said, we're not qualified, and there's, there, there are legal issues here, and we, we simply can't do it. And that, so that door was closed. Um, and then I started to go down this list of psychologists, and one after the other said, no, I can't talk to you because you're a juror. And I'm concerned about uh, the legal issue. And then finally, I just managed, I don't even remember how I managed to find them, to be honest. <laughs> but I finally broke through and found a clinic uh, that specialized in first responders in the military in Toronto, uh, dealing with PTSD and, 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 and trauma and made an appointment. And I, I actually had to go through two different um, uh, counselors until I found the, sort of the, the right fit. But that took over a year, um, and, and during that time, I just I was getting sicker and sicker and sicker, and became ultimately a, a different person. I, I still now believe I'm a, I'm a, I'm a different person than the one that walked into that courtroom.
0: In these legal issues that they seem to be so concerned with as you were trying to get help, my understanding is they had concerns about discussing like confidential juror information with you. Is that, is that what they seem to be concerned with?
1: The, the, so you're instructed as a juror not to talk about the trial. And you're instructed not to discuss the trial any of the trial elements with friends and family, work colleagues. Um, A good justice would would caution you on any conversation in social media. Um, You keep it to yourself, and uh, you're not allowed to talk about those trial elements. And you're certainly the, the the law is very clear on deliberation. So deliberation is sacred. So you are not permitted to discuss. With anyone, including a justice or anybody, how a decision is reached. Um, so what happens in the in the deliberation room stays there, and so that's that's written into the the criminal code um, within uh, a section called 649. Um, and so yes, that legal. Uh, provision is what was uh, raising the concerns amongst the the uh, psychologists that I encountered.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it, what I was going to ask is, um, do do you know how the Canadian system of dealing with this compares with with other countries? Like, if you were in in just like the United States or England or something for that matter, w- w- is there a different process for what happens after uh, a juror serves?
1: Yeah. So the, the common. I mean, we're, we're part of the Commonwealth. So, uh, in, in England and in Australia, it's very, very similar. So jurors again are, uh, not identified. Um, you're, the media is not allowed to report on jurors, uh, identify them in any way, shape or form. Uh, Jurors are uh, believe in both those jurisdictions are prohibited from uh, discussing um, openly elements of the trial and um, deliberations. The U.S. is totally different. It's a it's a it's completely different across the border. So jurors are uh, now it's state by state. Obviously, there are differences, but my understanding is in most states, um, even in in um, capital. Uh, crimes,
0: jurors are allowed
1: to talk about exactly what happened. Like, you know, the steps of the courtroom, O.J. Simpson jurors are saying, well, you know, here's what we, <laughs> yeah. you know, my name's Pete and here's the decision we reached. And they get a book and they get a book deal <laughs> uh, and they're, and they're on the Today Show the next morning. And, you know, so it's very, very different there. But the stresses and the conditions and the lack of support are the same. So just because your it's a f- sort of freer system, I, you know, freer, less restrictive, I would say, in terms of the jurors' ability to talk after the trial, there are the same struggles and the same um, concerns post-trial that that we've experienced here in Canada that we've tried, to, uh, we're trying to uh, to change.
0: Mm-hmm. And we'll get into that now. Where you've very publicly championed uh, what's being referred to as a jury support bill. It's titled Uh, C-417. Could you talk a bit about this bill and and what this aimed to change? And of course, tell us what happened with it, because I I understand it was recently uh, discussed in the Senate.
1: Uh, Bill C-417 was a private member's bill that was uh, a direct uh, lift from the Justice Committee, the the House of Commons Justice Committee, undertook a year-long study of jury duty, mental health, and stress, and produced a a landmark comprehensive report with 11 recommendations aimed at improving supports for jurors across the country post-trial, but really also some fundamental reforms that just just really are at the start of what needs to be done. So the Bill 417 is designed to remove that restriction that jurors face from talking about aspects of the trial and deliberation with a mental health practitioner. So, you know, right now it's illegal for a juror to have a free and open conversation with a psychiatrist, psychologist, licensed therapist. So I, I wouldn't be able to right now talk about any of the trauma that I experienced in court freely with my doctor or any anything that I experienced during deliberation that caused me ill health. Um, that's illegal. Um, how is a juror supposed to have a free and open conversation uh, and, and uh, on the road to wellness if they can't address the very thing that's caused them pain? So uh, that bill um, passed swiftly through the House of Commons, unanimously on every vote, uh, was had support from all parties, and uh, we it was passed late, though, in the parliamentary session, and so... Uh, we were sort of under the under the clock um, to get it into the Senate. And unfortunately, um, despite it having a lot of support from senators, um, it just sat at the bottom of the order sheet um, and did not move past first reading. So unfortunately, the House rose and the Senate rose and the bill has uh, perished in the Senate.
0: Wow, and and what does that mean for the for the bill? Like, is there a chance that it'll be you know considered at a later time, or are you back to basically square one?
1: Well, there's a there's a, an enormous amount of goodwill connected to that bill. There are an, a, a number of MPs uh, from all parties who are very disappointed that it didn't pass, um, and I've had conversations with all parties to say that. Um, they're determined to see it come back in the fall and determined to see it pass and, and to give it support. So I am uh, holding them to that. And I, I, believe that they will, you know, we're facing an election um, in the fall. So, um, you know, hopeful that all of them are, are will be back in the fall um, to see this bill through. We'll be able to pick up from where the justice committee left off with that report And advance some uh, some more reforms uh, to impact Canadians. Mm -hmm.
0: Now, for for people who are listening to this, and likely as I was surprised by, I guess what uh, the the situation a juror finds himself in after after the trial wraps up. What should they do? Like, who should they contact, or where should somebody start to um, to support you?
1: Well, uh, you know, we have an election coming up in the fall. So one of the best things uh, you can do is uh, be vocal uh, with the candidate who knocks on your door. If you're concerned at the moment, you can write your local Member of Parliament and and discuss directly with them. But I, I think you know this should be an election issue. Um, jury duty is something that is called upon for all Canadians, and it hasn't kept pace with the modern world that we live in right now.
0: Mark's story, at least to me, really highlights the need for changes in how Canadian jurors are treated both during and especially so post-trial. I see the value in having a jury of one's peers weigh the merits of a specific case, but the way I see it, that's a big ask of those peers, And the least we can do is make sure they come out the other end in one piece. Clearly, Mark feels the same way. Oh, and as a sort of grim side note to all this, the hell Mark went through during and after the trial of Farshad Badikshan, in the end, it was mostly in vain. Just one month after Mark and the other jurors found him guilty of second-degree murder, the 31-year-old took his own life in a jail cell. If you're interested in learning a bit more about that case, I've added some links to the show notes. And with that, we'll conclude this episode of Nighttime. If you want to dig into this story and the dark side of jury duty, you should come join me and my best friend Randy on the Nightcap post-show discussion. You can subscribe at patreon.com slash nighttimepodcast. But before we get to that, I want to end by giving thanks to some of those who assisted in this episode. To start, of course, a huge thanks goes to our guest, Mark Ferrand, for opening my eyes to what it means to serve on a Canadian jury. Mark, jurors across the country, both now and in the future, are fortunate to have someone with your skill sets and passion working to make things better. You and those fighting alongside you have already accomplished so much simply by sharing these issues with the public. And I know you're still far from done, so my hat's off to you. Next, I want to give a shout-out to Voxomnia and Paragon Cause for providing the musical themes for this episode. You can check out both of these great artists by following the links in the episode notes. And now I'll end with the biggest thanks of all. I want to thank everyone who's listening, as without you, I'd have no excuse to spend so much of my free time on this show. For anyone out there who wants more nighttime, check out my Patreon campaign. For a dollar a month, you can access the ad-free premium feed, which provides early releases of the episodes. And then, for only a couple dollars more, you can get access to the Nightcap After Show, in which I and a guest climb even further down the rabbit hole than what you hear here in the main episodes. You can join and support the show by visiting patreon.com slash nighttimepodcast. Now with that said, I'd like to thank the current patrons of the show and welcome the new members to the group. Patricia, Andrea, Karen, and Guberson. I appreciate your generous support of Nighttime. For anyone else who'd like to support the show but can't help financially, you can give me a big hand by telling your friends about me and leaving a positive review on Apple Podcasts or whichever equivalent you use. If any of you listening want to stay up to date with my activities on and off the show, follow me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. My handle is at NighttimePod. If anyone listening has a story idea or wants to give feedback on the show, I'd love to hear from you at NighttimePodcast at gmail.com. And until next time, take care of each other, hug your loved ones tight, and let me know if you see anything weird. The Nighttime Podcast is written, hosted,
1: and produced by Jordan Bonaparte. Copyright Jordan Bonaparte.